Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. In last week's episode, we learned how the Texas Forensic Science Commission came to be involved in George Powell's case. We now know that the end result of their evaluation was that the photogrammetry report and testimony of Michael Knox did not meet the commission's standard for what we call good science. What we're going to learn about today is how they came to that conclusion. In the second half of today's episode, we're going to hear directly from Mr. Grant Fredericks. Fredericks is the man that was contracted by the Texas Forensic Science Commission to evaluate and analyze Knox's testimony and report, as well as the second expert that was hired by Tamara Parsons and George's family. And then lastly, he was tasked with doing his own analysis of the video evidence in George's case so that he, a true professional and expert in his field, could present the commission with an accurate findings of the minimum and maximum height of the suspect who actually robbed the 7-Eleven in Colleen, Texas on June 9th, 2008. But before we get into our interview with Grant Fredericks, first I want to do a quick recap of Michael Knox's qualifications and his trial testimony to give you a solid foundation to understand what Grant Fredericks is going to be talking about. And before we get into that, I want to quickly touch on something that was mentioned in episode 404 with Tamara. We briefly mentioned the fact that one of the witnesses in the robberies said that the man who robbed her had tattoos on his forearm and his chest. And that's where we're going to start with today's episode. In George Powell's case, there are several things that we know to be fact. One of those things is the fact that George Powell does not have a tattoo on his forearm, nor does he have one on his chest. Never has. As you're already aware, George Powell was only convicted of robbing the 7-Eleven in Colleen, Texas. But one thing we know for sure is that the same robber that robbed that 7-Eleven also committed four other robberies over a span of a couple of weeks prior to the 7-Eleven robbery. The video evidence is crystal clear. It was absolutely the same man in all five robberies. And today I want to briefly touch on what we've been referring to as robbery number three. This was the robbery at the Mickey's Convenience Store on May 29th. At this robbery, the victim's name was Rihanna Wilkins. She was a store clerk. 
and the perpetrator in this offense got away with about $75. On the night of the offense, the victim, Rihanna Wilkins, was interviewed by police. And this is what it says about that interview in the police report. Quote, Rihanna said that she was at the register when a white male, approximately 5'10", mustache and goatee, wearing a white baseball cap, dark sunglasses, white long-sleeve shirt with brown pinstripes, sleeves rolled up to the elbows, white, quote, wife-beater undershirt, and blue jeans came into the store and pointed a gun at her. He said, quote, empty the fucking register, give me all the fucking money, end quote. He added, quote, open the register and give me all the hundreds, end quote. Rihanna told him that she had no hundreds in the register. She took the money from the register and placed it on the counter. The suspect was holding in his right hand a small silver gun with possible golden rear sight and glossy white grips. He placed his left hand on the store counter while he pointed the gun at Rihanna. He then placed the gun in his right pants pocket and with the right hand grabbed the money from the counter and placed it in the same pocket the gun was in. He turned around towards the door and pushed the left side open with his left hand. Rihanna was not sure if he touched the door handle or the glass as he exited the store. She said that the suspect ran towards Sunset Lane, north of the building. Rihanna was not certain of the exact amount or denomination of the money that was taken, but was able to provide the serial number for a stolen $2 bait bill that was taken. Rihanna said that she did not recognize the suspect and that she never saw him before tonight. She mentioned that the suspect had a tattoo on his chest and on his right arm. but she did not remember the tattoo designs. She said that she thought the suspect was, quote, kidding when he asked her for the money because he looked very calm. She became scared when she realized it was not a joke. She called the assistant manager and the police as soon as the suspect departed. Last week in passing during Tamara's interview, I asked if any of you have the equipment and ability to clean up a photo or a video. So far, we haven't had any takers on that, so I want to make the request again. The best, cleanest video that we have of the robber are the 7-Eleven videos that we have posted on our YouTube channel. These videos are in color, and they're pretty clear. Unfortunately, in the door angle where the robber is walking directly towards the camera, the image is completely whitewashed, and you can't get a good look at his chest. I spent a lot of time analyzing this video and stopping and pausing, and I believe that we may be able to see what looks to be a tattoo poking out of the right side of his chest around his tank top. But in order to be sure, we need to be able to clean up that image. So I'm going to ask again if anyone out there has the ability to sharpen the image so that we can know one way or another if we have clear and convincing evidence of a tattoo on the robber's chest Please reach out either through our tip line, 269-224-2833, through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or you can hit us on Twitter or on Facebook. But please let us know if you're willing to give that a shot. And if you want to see what it is that we're working with, go to the Truth and Justice Podcast YouTube channel and watch the videos. We do have a couple of other videos that you may be able to use, but they're in black and white and they're a little choppy, but they may be easier to work with. Before we move on to our refresher on Michael Knox, I do want to make one other request. One reason our Season 3 case, the Pleasant Grove case, the murder of Kiao Gove, has been so successful at producing leads and witnesses is because the Truth and Justice Army really engaged and shared a post that we put on our Facebook page asking for the attention of Pleasant Grove residents that lived in the area at the time. 
With this particular case, we've done the same thing. Pinned to the top of the Truth and Justice podcast page, our official page, is a post about this case with a link to the video of the 7-Eleven robbery. I would like to ask any and all of you that have any connections whatsoever to anyone in Bell County, Texas, to please go onto our Facebook page and share that post. It's pinned to the top. Beginning of the post is all caps, and it says Colleen and Copperas Cove Residence. I believe that if we can get that post in that video to go viral in the area, that someone will recognize the robber in the video. And also, let's not forget what we learned on Friday. The real robber is actually at zero risk of being prosecuted for this crime. The statute of limitations has long since run out. So the only thing that will be affected by someone coming forward with the truth is that the terrible injustice that has been put upon George Powell can finally be undone and he can go home to be with his loved ones. So again, please go to our Facebook page, look for the pinned post drawing the attention of Colleen and Copperas Cove residents, and if you have any connection in Bell County at all, please share that post and ask others to do the same. Now, before we hear Grant Fredericks himself present us with his professional analysis of the videotape of the 7-Eleven robberies, let's just take a couple of minutes to refresh ourselves on the man who testified at the original trial, Mr. Michael Knox. Knox was a detective in the traffic homicide unit of the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office in Jacksonville, Florida. He also had a side business where he did consulting work. In the voir dire examination of Knox at trial, he goes into his extensive education, but his education focuses on traffic accident reconstruction, not on photogrammetry and not on height determination from a photograph. At trial, Knox was asked to define photogrammetry. This was his response from the transcripts. Quote, Well, basically, photogrammetry is just the science of obtaining measurements from a photograph. And the way that's done is, it's mathematical. Basically, that we use a software package called Photomodular, which is one of several different software packages that do this. And by telling the software in a series of photographs where points match, that this point in this photograph is the same as this point in another photograph, then the software performs the mathematical calculations to determine things such as where was the camera for each of those photographs and parameters about that camera. And then it can be used to, we can do either two-dimensional models or three-dimensional models of something strictly off of photographs. End quote. The prosecutor then asked Knox, quote, Now back in the old days when they didn't have that software, did they just have to do those kinds of equations by hand? Knox's answer, they did. In fact, years ago, say the early days of the using NASA as an example, you would literally have rooms full of engineers sitting there all day long just crunching numbers and doing the equations by hand. What the software has allowed us to do is take that from being something that might take days, weeks, months in order to perform these types of calculations to the computer that can do it in a matter of seconds or maybe a few minutes. So Knox is clearly impressed with the software's ability to complete days worth of work in a matter of seconds. He then goes on to explain his level of education using this software. Quote, I just recently attended a training course that's through the manufacturer that's using Photomodular that's specific to accident reconstruction. But we also dealt with some crime scene reconstruction type stuff in there as well. End quote. In the entirety of Knox's testimony, we see that he's incredibly impressed with the software but I feel that the place where he's making his mistake is that he believes the software can do everything. And what you're going to hear later in Grant Frederick's testimony 
is that that is absolutely not the case. But let's talk for a minute about Knox's process in obtaining the height calculations that were used at trial, other than waiting what he says was a number of seconds for the computer to punch out a number to him. What he didn't do is actually go to the crime scene and take physical measurements of known items within the store. So there are a few things in that video where we have unknown heights or measurements. The most important one would be the suspect's height. But almost everything else in the store has a known height. You could measure the heights of the shelves, the heights of the counter, the width of the counter, the height of the cashier, the height of the door, the width of the door, and on and on and on and on and on. But Knox, on the other hand, never went to the store to take any measurements. Well, that's actually not quite true. He did, in fact, visit the store the night before he testified, months after he had already written his report and submitted his opinion. Based on his testimony, the night that he did, in fact, visit the crime scene, the night before the trial, he took exactly one measurement, and that was the measurement of the door. He was asked if he measured the countertop, height, width, anything else, and he said no, just the door. He goes on to say that this is the first time that he's ever actually used the software to determine height. It's also the first time that he was working from what he called, quote, an unknown camera. What we're going to learn from Grant Fredericks in just a little bit is that it is imperative for you to know the height, the angle, the location, the distortion, and everything else about the camera that you're using to make your analysis. Not only was Knox working blind off of this, quote, unknown camera, which I suppose probably can be done, but this was the first time that he'd ever made an attempt at it. Ultimately, his report and his testimony concluded that the robber could have been no shorter than six foot one inches tall, which for any of you that have seen the videos of the robberies is absolutely baffling. With just simple, basic layman knowledge, it's easy to know that the doorway the suspect was walking through had a clear height opening of six foot eight inches. And it's very easy to pause those videos when the robber had one foot inside and one foot outside of the door, putting his body right smack dab in the middle of the frame. And it's even easier to see that there is well over a foot of clear space between the top of his head and the bottom of the door frame. But nonetheless, Knox who, by the way, was given the height of George Powell by the prosecution prior to doing his analysis, came up with a minimum height of six foot one. This, from one camera angle, with one measurement that he took himself, his first time ever using the software to determine height, and the first time working with a, quote, unknown camera. Michael Knox was determined by the judge to be an expert. The jury accepted Knox's testimony as fact and sent George away to spend over a quarter of a century locked up behind bars. Knox's analysis was the linchpin of the state's case. Think about how impossible it would be to convince a jury that someone six foot three committed a robbery when there is clear color video evidence of a robber who is clearly under five foot eight inches tall. In order to make that happen, Knox had to have been extremely confident in his findings. And he was. He was certain that there was no possibility, zero, that the suspect was under six foot one. He said as much on the stand, that's what the jury heard, and that's what they used to convict George Powell. Interestingly enough, though, 
Once the Forensic Science Commission determined that Knox's report and his methodology were flawed, he then reevaluated his own findings and surprisingly came to a new conclusion. In his latest findings, he changed the minimum height of the robber by three inches. He now says that the robber was a minimum height of not six foot one, but rather five foot ten. By his own evaluation, he concedes that his 2009 trial testimony was false. He sold the jury a bill of goods in order to bolster the prosecution's case. It wasn't until an actual photogrammetry expert, Grant Fredericks, publicly discredited his findings that he made the adjustment. Although Knox still maintains that George could still be the robber. And that's because by his analysis, he can determine with all certainty the minimum height of the robber, but makes no report on the maximum height. Based on his report, the robber could have been 5'10 or 6'10, just as long as he's not shorter than 5'10. Knox's testimony at trial was no more than smoke and mirrors. It was an illusion designed to woo the jurors into making sense of Melissa Keene's massive discrepancy between her witness statement and her identification of George Powell. And where we stand today through George's habeas hearings is a battle of the so-called experts. Or at least that's what George's attorneys were hoping to have. But as you heard last week from Allison Clayton, the state doesn't want Michael Knox anywhere near that stand where he could be cross-examined by the Innocence Project of Texas attorneys. Is your new expert? Uh, who is an actual FBI trained photogrammetry expert who says what and I believe he said the most likely five foot seven, but somewhere between five, six and five, eight. Is that what he landed on? Yeah, he said he said he estimates the, the suspect to be five foot seven point four inches with a two inch margin of error under and a two inch margin of an error over, which would be a uh, a scientific finding. And then uh, in response to that, Knox reevaluates, and now he says, well, not six foot one, but five foot ten. Right. Because now it goes into the area of reputation and liability. That's where he stands now. He's got to, cl- he's got to clean it up. So he concedes a little bit, and enough that really should be proof enough. I mean, five foot ten is still five inches shorter than you, almost half a foot. That's a big difference. After a quick break for the ads, we're going to hear directly from Grant Fredericks himself. I asked him if he would come on the show and explain to us exactly what photogrammetry really is and why he believes that George Powell should be set free. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mr. Fredericks, can we first start off with you telling us a little bit about what you do? Uh, as far I know you do photogrammetry work. Is that the only type of consulting work that you do? 
No, I'm a forensic video analyst, so I examine uh, both video and audio information recorded to digital video recorders for all sorts of different kinds of cases, whether that recorder is attached to a police officer in a body-worn video or whether it's at a bank or a taxi cab or, in this case, a convenience store. So I'll uh, examine video evidence uh, and assist the judge or jury, the trier of fact, to accurately interpret that information. And that includes things like speed estimation, uh, height analysis, and uh, photographic video comparison, and a number of other techniques that deal with the examination of video evidence. Okay, and so have you done much work prior to George Powell's case uh, regarding uh, assessing height through photogrammetry or video analysis? Yes, I've been a forensic video analyst for over 30 years. And uh, a lot of the work that we do includes photogrammetric examinations uh, of uh, height analysis, uh, including the examination of distances for things like speed examination as well. Okay. And then in George's case, or I guess backing up even before George's case, what types of methodologies do you use looking at a video to determine someone's height? Well, there are generally two different methodologies that we employ often we'll do them both together. One is called reverse projection, which is where we take the historic camera view, the the view of the incident, and we go to the scene, we record a contemporary view from the same camera and the same recording system, and then we do an overlay. That overlay allows us then to compare objects within the field of view of both images and then conduct measurements. And so we'll often introduce a, a height chart into the scene at different locations. The other is a 3D analysis where we go into the scene and we conduct a scan with a 3D system of the geometry of the scene. So this scan creates measurement points of virtually every object within the scene that's within view of the scanner. And so we'll often get a few hundred million scans inside, uh, scan points inside a premise. And because there are so many, they can be stitched together, and it then creates an accurate geometry of the scene. From that perspective, uh, we can then do the overlay of the historic view and then conduct very precise uh, height analysis examination. With both of those methods, would you need to go specifically to a scene and take physical measurements on the scene that's in the video? Yes, all photogrammetric examinations require on-site visits. You have to go to the scene, you have to do an examination, you have to consider things like the distortion in the camera, the compression, that's the the codec involved in the initial recording device, and then you have to ensure that objects within the scene that are consistent from camera view to camera view are actually consistent. You have to validate that process. So yes, you you have to go to the scene. Okay, and so that leads us into... How did you become involved in the George Powell case out of Bell County, Texas? Uh, I was contacted by the Texas Forensic Science Commission and asked to uh, be an independent consultant in the examination of the original video, the report that was produced by the prosecutor's office, and the testimony that was provided at trial. I was also asked to look at a report that was commissioned by the family by another analyst, and I was asked to compare each of the reports and to provide the Texas Forensic Science Commission with uh, an understanding of why these two reports were so different 
what methodologies were followed and if the correct methodologies were followed. Okay, and that, that first report was the one by the state's expert, uh, Mr. Michael Knox. What was the second report that you were analyzing? The second report was one that was commissioned by the family that was done by uh, two individuals who provide expert evidence in video in uh, primarily civil, I guess, some criminal cases. In the first report, the state's expert, what were the the conclusions that he had drawn as far as the height of the suspect? Well, the state's expert was provided the height of Mr. Powell before he did his work. So he sort of knew uh, where the measurements were going. Mm -hmm. The work that was done by Mr. Knox didn't follow any recognized standard. Mr. Knox had never done a height measurement before. He had never taken a class in video examinations. He used the technology to do the initial height comparison that he had never received training on before he did his work. He received training uh, with the technology just before he testified. But that was a few months after he had completed his, his analysis. Mm -hmm. He didn't follow any accepted standard. And as a result of that, he came to the wrong conclusion. His conclusion, I believe, was that the, the robber had would be a minimum height of six foot one or just over six foot one, correct? He said that the robber was taller than six foot one and an eighth, I believe. He said that his measurement showed he was six foot one and an eighth, but he was bending over, therefore he was taller than that. Okay. And then it, it sounds like your, your opinion after analyzing his work was that that was not accurate. Correct. It was not accurate. Other than the lack of training and things for myself as a layman and many people that are listening to this who are also laymans, one of the things that really stood out to me was the fact that he had apparently made his conclusions or drawn his conclusions without ever going to the crime scene to take any physical measurements. Is that accurate? That's correct. He did not attend the crime scene prior to conducting his examination and forming his opinion. He uh, went to the crime scene the, the night before he testified, but he didn't change his opinion. All the work that he did, his report was completed, his opinions were generated without ever having gone to the scene, without ever receiving any training in height analysis, without receiving any training in the technology that he used, and without ever having testified to this in any other case in the past. And to be clear, in your opinion, is it even possible, using any kind of software or methodology, to determine the height of someone in a video like that without physically taking measurements on the scene? Well, you could have a third party take measurements, and provided you have the proper skills and training, you could then take that third party's measurements and process them. This is not what he did. I mean, he took some photographs and some measurements that were provided to him, but again, he didn't know how to apply them. So I wouldn't say that the the analyst actually has to go to the scene, but the scene measurements have to be taken correctly by somebody who is trained to do that. And then what was the findings or what were the findings of the second expert, the one that was hired by the family? Well, the second expert uh, went to the scene and conducted some measurements and then did kind of a common sense examination. And that common sense examination was basically making observations of when the, the robbery suspect captured the video moves through the doorway and is close to the five foot seven height marker on the doorway. Read the police reports, read the witness statements. The witness statements all said he was about five foot seven, and they concluded that the suspect was five foot seven. Unfortunately, they didn't do any photogrammetric measurements that followed any methodology either, but they did come up with a relatively accurate height comparison. But again, it didn't follow any scientific standard. 
you know, using a common sense approach is okay, but relying on witness statements and police reports is probably not the best way to do this. And, and you know, and, and we followed a similar methodology in, from our position to just look at the video and, and you, you know, w- without applying any real science, in my opinion, you look at it and you've got a guy that is well under six foot tall. Um, yeah. And, and he's you know, like, it's, it, that, that methodology is okay for an investigator. Investigator who you know wants to be able to eliminate uh, suspects can look at the video and you know provided they have a little bit of training on what they're looking at can say yeah the, the suspect's not ducking his head when he goes through the doorway therefore he's not close to the height of the doorway he's about half the height of the doorway therefore he's about you know this height that that's a common sense approach it's not scientific it's not something that would be admissible in court to determine the actual height of the suspect but it's helpful for an investigator. And that really is what the second group did. They they looked at the video and they applied, as you did, a common sense approach and said, you know what, he appears to be roughly at the seven at the five foot seven mark. And when the employee who goes to lock the door after the person leaves is also at about that five foot seven height. And sure enough, that employee is about five foot seven. So you can make those common sense observations. But they wouldn't meet the standards for scientific measurement, but they're still valid. And then that's where you come in as, a, as an actual expert. Now, you were um, contracted by, you said, by the Forensic Science Commission in Texas. When you did your analysis, was it simply to analyze the work that's already been done? Or did, were you asked to do your own independent analysis of the video to determine a height? Well, it's both, really. In order to properly understand what was done to test the methodology, we also have to do our own examination. That's why we not only examined the reports from the other two experts and and the transcripts from the trial, but we also conducted our own examination. When you did your own, I guess we'll talk, we talked a little bit about kind of in broader terms, but specifically, when you did your examination of the crime scene, what steps did you take at the, to do the photogrammetry analysis at the 7-Eleven, and what were your conclusions? Well, the first thing that we did was uh, we went to the scene, did an examination of the scene, and then produced a geometric scan of the interior and exterior of the scene, because the robber is seen moving you know, both outside and inside. Mm. And I believe that we produced about 300 to 400 million scan points. And what that allows us to do when they're meshed, meshed together is that we can move anywhere within the interior of the building and replicate heights of anything that's visual in the scene. Once that was done uh, and we've made some basic observations, we then went to the uh, prison facility where Mr. Powell is, is being detained, and we measured his height with one scan device. And then we actually scanned his body with a secondary scan device. So we actually reproduced the full geometry of his physical features and then validated the measurements with the secondary scan device, so two independent scans. Hmm. So we now have the full geometry of his body, which we can then introduce into the scene. And when you introduce something that is six foot three into the scene inside the store, you can measure that off of any device, any object within the store. So if we placed this scan of his body into the geometry of our other scan and we placed him up against the doorway, he exactly hits the six foot three, just over six foot three mark on the doorway. We also had a secondary validation where we had multiple objects that were measured inside the store. Once we produce our scan, we validated that those objects are still the exact same height within the geometry. So anything that we introduce that is scanned, introduced into the uh, the crime scene geometry, they all 
meet their exact heights. So that's when we were able to place Mr. Powell's geometry into the scene. And it literally it looks, looks like a 3D image of him, full photograph and 3D geometry of features of his face, his arms, his body, uh, his shoulders and legs. So they actually, we can actually move his body around that scene to every position where we had a full image of the suspect during the robbery back in 2009. And when we do that overlay, we can then do a comparison analysis between the height of the robbery suspect and the features of Mr. Powell. Do you first determine an estimated or minimum maximum height of the suspect, or do you, you just go right into comparing it to the known height of George Powell? No. The first thing we did is we did a, a height analysis of the suspect before we introduced Mr. Powell into the, into the equation. Mr. Knox, who did the initial work for the prosecutor's office, did his work on one image of the suspect from one camera view. And he did state that if he had more camera views, he could have done additional measurements. Well, he did have more camera views. There were, I think, uh, at least four interior camera views showing the suspect walking, standing in various positions uh, in the store before the robbery. In fact, he was standing in line waiting for another customer to finish the transaction. So the fact that we have the suspect standing erect not in motion in multiple camera views allows us to kind of triangulate the person's height from multiple perspectives. Each of the perspectives has their own resolution issues. Uh, resolution is the ability to distinguish an object from another in a scene, so the further away from, from the target the camera is, the lower the resolution is going to be, which means there's going to be a higher margin of error, potential rate of error. The closer the camera is, the higher the resolution, the more precise we can be in our measurement. So we had four camera views. We conducted measurements of the robbery suspect in multiple positions in each of those camera views, and we applied the margin of error to each of the measurements. And then we came up with a matrix of potential heights of the suspect, applying the correct margin of error based on the resolution of each camera view. And then we basically took all our measurements together, and then we provided an average based on all of the margins of error. Okay, and what was that average? The range in height ranged from five foot four and just a little bit to five foot nine and just a little bit. So there was about a five inch range. The top and the bottom of those two were from the camera that had the worst margins of error. So basically what we were able to say is the robbery suspect could be no shorter than five foot four and a bit and no taller than five foot nine and a bit. All of the other measurements were around five foot seven. So when we averaged everything out, the robbery suspect was just slightly over five foot seven. To clarify, the five foot four and the five foot nine were based on that margin of error because of that you had to include everything that was possible in all cameras. You said one camera had some Correct. resolution issues. Yes, and they were the outliers. So normally in this kind of thing, you'd throw the outliers out, but we left them in uh, just so that we could, you know, show from all angles and. The, the camera that provided the, that had the worst margin of error wouldn't have been the one you would normally pick. You would choose the cameras with more reliability and higher resolution, but we wanted to be fully inclusive, and that did stretch the potential rate. But basically what we're saying with that is that that is the absolute high, tallest the person could be, 5'9 and a tiny bit, and the absolute shortest the person could be, 5'4. But once we got the individual into the better camera views, and then compared them to the known height of the employees, the known height of the door, the known height of our measurement standards, then the height correlated to about five foot seven. 
So w- would you say from from your in your opinion, if you had to make your best estimate based on the science for the height of the suspect, what would you say their your, their most likely height would be? Well, and, and that's a good question because in court we have to include everything. So we would basically say here is the average height, five foot seven. He is most likely five foot seven. But when we apply the margins of error with all of the camera views, he could be no shorter than five foot four, no taller than than five foot nine. So that's how it's phrased in a forensic way at trial. But I would be asked the the question you asked for an opinion and say, based on all of this, what would your opinion of the person's height be? My opinion would be the person is about five foot seven. Is there to be crystal clear? Is there any possibility? that that robber was 5 foot 10 or taller. No, there's no possibility he was taller than 5 foot 9. Now that is science. And I don't see how any judge or jury anywhere in the world could hear Grant Fredericks testify and not be 100% certain that George Powell is completely innocent of all of these robberies. And I believe wholeheartedly that on November 9th in Bell County, Texas, when Grant Fredericks takes the stand, that George Powell is going to be set free. Before I close out today's episode, I want to give you all a little bit of a heads up of what we have to come in the next several weeks. Like we said at the very beginning of Season 4, this was going to be a six-part mini-series, and next week will be our finale of the George Powell case. Now, we will definitely keep everyone informed as he moves along through his habeas hearings, but next Sunday will be our last official episode on Season 4. Then in two weeks, we have one more episode before we start Season 5, and that episode is going to be dedicated to updating everyone on what's going on with our Season 3 case, The Murder of Kiao Gove. Over the past several weeks, the Truth and Justice Army has been hard at work and has found witnesses and sent me new leads, and we have discovered a massive break in the case, which we will be revealing in two weeks on October 29th. Then, the following week, on November 5th, we're finally going to be launching into our Season 5 case. And I believe that the work we're going to do through Season 5 is going to be groundbreaking, and it's going to leave a lasting effect on the American criminal justice system. When we show the world what ordinary people can do when we combine our forces in real-time crowdsource and investigation, on November 5th, in three weeks, we will launch into our Season 5 case, reinvestigating the West Memphis Three. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Buzzing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com. Thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, and Anna Dindorf. And thank you to Desiree Dunn for printing and mailing our transcripts. Thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com, and also to Katie Ross, who have been working together to get our website up to date. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Remember, between now and Wednesday, to send your questions, comments, thoughts, and theories either to our email address, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or on our Facebook page for the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page, or on Twitter at truthjusticepod, 
or you can leave voicemails on our tip line at 269-224-2833. Get your questions, comments, and theories in before Wednesday of this week for this week's Friday follow-up. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.